Welcome to Unpack This, where academic misfits unload their shit. This is our episode on problematic faves, and I am Joe Shu, one of your hosts. And I am Constance Bailey, the other host. So I guess we're going to check in. We haven't talked in a bit. So how are you doing? What are you up to? Yeah. So yeah, I was just going to say, like, what have you been up to? So probably based on like our editing and and release schedule, people may not know that there's been a break. I think October is probably or arguably, right, the busiest month for academics. And and we could probably debate that. I think I postponed like two weeks. I was like, okay, I can't do this week and I can't do next week. (laughs) But I'm directing someone's dissertation and I really needed to get them some feedback and there were a couple other um, like conference CFPs, and I'm always trying to have some like experiential component to my courses. So I was trying to do some budget stuff to get funding to take my students to an HBCU because I'm teaching this class, you know, the Black Collegiate and Popular Culture. And, you know, I waxed on about how great and wonderful homecoming is. And so we're not going to a homecoming, but, you know, I did want to have that you know, I just wanted that experience to be a part of the course. It's it's really important to me that, that they be able to juxtapose what it's like for a, you know, Black student at a pr- predominantly white institution versus a historically Black, you know, college and university. So, yeah, it's been, I mean, it's been busy thing and parenting things, of course. Um, I always, you know, like you're a pet parent. So you also have, there are ebbs and flows, but <laughs> lots of doctor's appointments and, and life things. And so, yeah, and I had my, I want to say imminent return to group fitness yesterday, mm-hmm. but it really was very, <laughs> it was, I was going to have like social media and like return of the Mac and like really awesome music and be like, yes, Constance is returning to group fitness. <laughs> and instead I was like, Hey y'all, I'm doing a class Sunday night. You can sign on if you want to. <laughs> so it, was, it was very underwhelming the, the return. Yeah. What, what have you had going on lately? No, I'm, I'm excited for you though. The returning to, to movement. I remember after surgery, just getting to move again was nice, even though it was underwhelming entirely. But I've been, so speaking of like really busy times for academics, it's conference season-ish, like at least for the fall conferences and everything I'm doing is still online. But last week I uh, co-facilitated a workshop with some scholars who I really admire on storytelling and racial justice. And I also was invited to do this workshop with the, Asian American Solidarity Collective, where we also talked about Asian American experiences and storytelling and the ways that thoughtful strategic storytelling can participate in coalition building. But I really love spaces that are not exclusively academic, uh, where I get to talk about some of my academic things, but really we're talking about the ways that that applies to people outside of universities who are still also interested in, in how language functions. Um, it's, I don't know. It's, it's cool to be in rooms where I don't have my professor hat on necessarily. Yeah, no, that sounds awesome. That sounds amazing. Yeah. I forgot I did. I've have done a couple talks maybe, I don't know. Um, but I definitely got to talk about, I kind of dabble in, in African-American food ways. And so I was giving a talk about Toni Morrison's beloved. And I think that it's so interesting, right? I, I, one of the things I would never identify myself as a foodway scholar, but I think some people think of me in that vein. But I think it's just because when I have to teach undergraduates, it just becomes so eye-opening for them that something that seems very innocuous to them. And it's very, I mean, it's just a part of our everyday life, the ritual of eating and consuming food. And it's something that people don't think about, like how it reflects social class stratification and how it can enforce, you know, 
boundary maintenance in terms of you know, group membership and just all, you know, all sorts of things, right? The regional aspects of it that are very interesting. And I don't know nearly enough about it. I never try to pretend that I do, but it's interesting for a novel. Um, many of Morrison's novels are, are very much food is integral to thinking about them. And, and a lot of the protagonists are cooks and domestics and food preparation becomes, a, you know, like an integral part of the novel and Beloved certainly has lots of food moments that the students were like, wow, if what my friend tells me is true, her students had not thought about that. So I was like, well, I'm really glad. And yeah, I hope that it was, because sometimes it feels like I'm just throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. It's nice to know that it sticks to get feedback, (laughs) that something stuck for sure. So yeah, but that sounds really cool. I wish we had more time, right? That we could be fly on the wall, like when you're talking about storytelling, because I think we do really interesting things and that we don't get enough you know, opportunity to talk about that. But Although it does occur to me that at some point we should do an episode on food. That's a fun through line, I think, in both folklore and in rhetoric, that we get to do these things for student, uh, we get to have these discussions with students about how this everyday, seemingly innocuous thing is actually deeply infused with cultural meaning and, you know, flows of power. So, yes, yes, yes. Anyway, problematic faves for today. Yes, problematic faves. So, yeah, that was, I don't remember whose idea it was, but we can both take credit for these great ideas. It's probably your oh, idea. Oh, well, that phrasing is definitely you. I think that was oh, you. Okay. All right. <laughs> well, anyway, so, yeah, so problematic phase, I guess why now, right? And so I was going to ask you, what is one of your problematic phase? But I guess I should even just say in terms of why now, I think one of the reasons that it feels so timely to me is because I am a scholar. You know, I I do write about African-American comedy and humor and Chappelle's uh, Netflix special, The Closer, has had so much attention, um, good, bad, and otherwise, and has just been provocative. And I've read some really great uh, think pieces. And I think, let me see, Roxane Gay, I think you shared an article, I want to say it might have been Danielle Fuentes Morgan, who wrote that piece. And I'm a fan of her work. And then I think poet Saeed Jones. There there have been a lot of pieces. I I won't even try to enumerate them, but they all have slightly different takes, right? But all takes that I respect and, and that I probably wholeheartedly agree with. Since people know that I do write about African-American comedy and humor, I've been asked about my take and I always try to preface and say, I haven't seen it, but here's what I can say. (laughs) And so here's what I know to be true. And so it's really been interesting, that conversation. So I think just the Chappelle thing and also this conversation about cancel culture more generally, I think that people have been having, Mm -hmm. is that even a thing, right? Because on the one hand, you have people saying accountability for one's actions is not, that's not cancel culture. Like mm-hmm. <laughs> actions have consequences. So I guess I just kind of wanted your take more generally, like why now? And then then what is one of your problematic phase? Oh man. Okay. So yeah, a, a few things to footnote real quick. Uh, I want to also mention among the many takes on this, uh, Imara Jones of Translash Podcasts and Media and Cancel Me Daddy, a podcast that I quite enjoy, did a crossover episode where Imara Jones went on. So it's three trans people, one black woman of color who does, one black trans woman of color who does uh, trans media specifically, talking about uh, Dave Chappelle. And I think that's a really important conversation for folks who are actually interested in diving into the nitty gritty of this. Um, And the other response I wanted to have about cancel culture is that 
I think my problem with that term is that it's a giant umbrella term for a whole host of different reactions to a whole host of different situations that can't quite capture all of the nuance of what's happening. So, so you can have a situation where, say, a very famous, very wealthy, very influential person is being told on Twitter that they said something harmful to a marginalized community. And that's pretty much never actually canceling. That person ends up still being very rich, very famous, very influential. They just happen to have a bunch of people on Twitter yelling at them for a while. Or maybe, you know, their one talk at this one place got canceled or something, but nothing really is being taken away from them. And there are also instances, I shared this article that was actually pretty heartbreaking. So there was a short story that was a big deal in, in the small trans universe. It was in Clark's World, a longstanding sci-fi publication, and it was titled, I Sexually Identify as an Attack Helicopter, which is reappropriating that meme that circulates on the right to make fun of trans and queer politics, gender is made up, haha. Um, it was written by a trans woman, but she had written under pseudonym because she wasn't out. And for this brief initial moment, readers were mostly positive about it. It's artfully written and, in my view, appears pretty readily as a critique of the surveillance and regulation of gender. But because the author was anonymous, some people started suggesting, you know, what if this title is actually trolling trans people? So Twitter did its thing and people who hadn't even read the, style, the, the story piled on, including some very famous sci-fi writers. And beyond just attacking this story, people were saying that the author they were claiming that the author, quote, had to be a cisgender man because no woman would write this way, right? The author wound up asking that the story be taken down. She had already been struggling with her mental health and all of this very understandably threw her into a dysphoric spiral and she wound up checking herself into a psychiatric ward. So Emily Vanderweffen Vox has this very well-written extensive piece on it. And, and she has this quote from the author that's that stuck with me. So she said that after these events, uh, she saw the story as a sort of peer review of her own womanness. And, and this makes it seem like she failed, which is not true. We failed her, or at least the discursive environment that her story entered failed her in this inability to listen, right? I mean, Structurally vulnerable people have many good reasons to be suspicious. But in this case, that suspicion was weaponized against someone who did not come to harm, who was actually looking for recognition from her community. So to put events like this, where a marginalized writer is not only silenced, but harmed to the point of checking herself into a mental health care facility and deciding to pull the rest of her submitted writing from other publication venues, to put this beside rich, famous folks using their gigantic platforms to complain about being publicly disliked by some people. Cancel culture just captures too many different possible reactions in the public sphere. It's, it's often used to flatten difference and sometimes to dismiss the very real grievances of a marginalized group. And that same phenomenon can't be lumped into when it is used to actually disenfranchise vulnerable people, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And that's a really good point. I really hate that. I'm glad that for a writer who is vulnerable and whose identity, like that they that they are able to publish anonymously, but the way that gets then interpreted. And I often think about the consequences or not even consequences, but we as academics, and I guess in some ways we're now venturing into public intellectual space and the potential for, you know, backlash or the potential for things to be 
misinterpreted or the the way in which vitriol can be publicly directed at us. While I am concerned, I also think that because we are, one, we're attached to institutions that in some ways we are representing or an extension of, but also I think that it helps in terms of building and establishing an audience that we do have our names and our and our public personas, whatever, good, bad, or otherwise, whatever they may be, that can sort of help help establish the the podcast in terms of getting what how's the metaphor like something about getting on the ground and running i'm i'm butchering mm. uh, the proverb but anyway the there are real potential risk also and that's unfortunate right it would be nice if twitter and and these public platforms were places where you only have constructive criticism <laughs> and conversations that are positive and that encourage you and that are generative and i'm reminded of this it was an animated movie. I don't know. Maybe Wreck-It Ralph or something, something I took my kids to see. Like probably 10 years ago now because time is doing some weird vortex or something. It feels like it was two years ago. It probably was 10. But mm-hmm. anyway, the, the point was there was this character, you know, there was this social media or something and the person became so obsessed. You know, and the way that academics become obsessed with the one negative review, even if you've got, you know, 200 glowing ones, we hyper-focus. And the character says to, to her or him, you can't read the comments. You can't. And it's easier said than done. Like for this writer, you know, who's struggling with mental health issues or all of the things that you've mentioned, it's not that easy. Although for us, I think it is that easy because I will put on our Twitter feed, like I will block, (laughs) like (laughs) whenever I actually actively use our Twitter, I can't entertain the negative energy, but everybody doesn't have that luxury. Right. And so... Yeah, we've said that I don't have Twitter. And one of the reasons I don't have Twitter or haven't yet, I might end up, I keep needing to use Twitter for research. So anyway, despite the point, um, the reason, part of the reason being that Twitter, uh, I think folks have said it before, is where nuance goes to die. I think it's, it's Michael Hobbs has, has said lots of things about this, that Twitter has a very important usage, especially in the age of hashtags, where it allows structurally marginalized people to express outrage en masse in a way that didn't wasn't easy before the internet. But also, it, when you circulate arguments in 124 characters or whatever it is that you have, you necessarily erase a lot of nuance. And then it becomes like this game of internet telephone, right? Like in the example of that story where lots of people who hadn't even read this story just presumed this anonymous author was transphobic rather than asking, maybe she might've had other reasons for hiding her identity. And maybe you putting her read of femininity or womanhood on trial is exactly the thing that would perpetuate this author's, you know, need for anonymity and fears, right? About being public. So Anyway, all that is to say that uh, cancel culture is is a very imperfect term that I try not to use because I think it collapses a lot of important distinctions. Uh, similarly, I actually don't like the term problematic. Every, every time one of my students uses it, I, I write, what do you mean by this? Because it, it is also used as like, a thing I feel icky about, but don't actually, haven't fully articulated why I feel icky about this thing, you know? Um, which yeah, is no, not it's not useful. a great term. <laughs> right. Uh, I mean, it's particularly not helpful when you're writing an academic argument. He's yeah. like, uh, you're a rhetorician, analyze what is the thing that you're trying to identify. But... No, it's totally a holdover from grad school where when I couldn't think of what I wanted to say, I just said it's problematic. So it's super (laughs) imprecise and (laughs) 
(laughs) And it becomes this umbrella term for many things. To your point, what is the thing? What is the actual issue or what is the concern? Are you objecting because this thing is racist or sexist or it's whatever? Um, So, yes, but that's what we got for today. So. (laughs) And so often it's because I want the students to say it, right? I'm like, name it. It's racism. Say it right now. Um, but yeah, I, okay. So, so the question was, what is, what is one of your problematic faves? And I, so we've said this before and I think it's worth emphasizing art is never perfect. Uh, and we also should not expect art to be perfect because it creates this sort of paralyzing situation where folks might not even try that expression, which would be terrible for cultural production. But I also, so as a, you know, trans, queer, disabled uh, person of color, I, I get very sad sometimes that it's very hard for me to consume media without, you know, finding some element of myself attacked <laughs> in by the thing that I'm watching. So, so my example of this is, is Lovecraft country actually, which I love as a show and I made you watch it. And so much of it is so beautifully done. And I think it's, it's episode four where they have just an awful representation of a uh, two spirit identity of indigenous communities. It perpetuates uh, notions of indigenous erasure. It, creates this, it perpetuates the narrative of the gender non-conforming body as monstrous. Uh, and it was just surprisingly not thoughtful for a show that was otherwise super thoughtful about its approach to representation. And I think it's particularly from corners like that. Like when I'm watching a Marvel movie or when I'm watching, you know, mainstream television, I, I expect it to be sort of a really flat uh, approach to representation, but it was this this it was this particular show that had otherwise been so very exquisitely done in terms of its its narrative and its storytelling that just out of nowhere for this completely um i don't know harmful reductive regressive rendering of of transness of indigeneity that's not a community i'm part of but still um it felt really wounding to me that i just I remember the episode ended and I just sort of sat there staring at the TV for a while. Like, what did I do? I was not emotionally prepared for this. I did not have my armor on. So I think that that's one of the examples that comes to mind in terms of, you know, I, I still, I still really like the show. It's still really good. Um, But also I would never watch that episode again, I guess is, is where I wound up with that. Yeah. I remember distinctly us having those conversations and, there being a discomfort on my part, but I really couldn't name the, so I probably still would have ended up with, with problematic. Like you did a great job of articulating what exactly did not sit right with you. And I just, I didn't know. And you're right. The show was so well done on so many levels and it's really heartbreaking that there's not going to be a season two, but I do wonder, you know, maybe a show that had such moments of brilliance, Maybe that's what you do, you know, because if it's an impossible act to follow, what do you do? I I distinctly remember you saying that. I mean, it's hard for me when I think about problematic faves to even, I shouldn't say like to know where to begin, because the natural inclination, I think, on some level is for me to say, Chappelle. (laughs) But there have been so many conversations and think pieces about Chappelle. One of the things that I have said, and I don't, I haven't really ventured into public intellectualism as a, I don't publish for the most part in non-academic journals, not because I don't, not because I don't think I have 
you know, great ideas to, to contribute. A lot of it is time. But I also don't know that I can really add anything meaningful to this conversation. And one of the things that I have said informally is that I want to elevate Black women comics and humorists like I'm done talking about blah, blah, blah. But what I will say, and this is very much um, echoed in the Danielle Fuentes Morgan piece for Vulture, I think. And she also recently published, it might have come out last year, I think, Laughing to Keep from Dying, which I haven't had a chance to get yet just because of some other research. But I did hear a talk that she gave when the book was launching and it was great. So I really respect her contributions to the field. But it's that so much of my love for Chappelle is really rooted in it's dated right at this point. So I love what he represented or what his stand up performances from now, probably 20 years ago. And those things are dated and they also don't reflect his status as celebrity and the fact that he's wealthy and affluent and they don't reflect the very aggressive cis het. <laughs> like I know lots of cis hetero men who do comedy and they're not necessarily Trans, transphobic or homophobic, as I feel some of Chappelle's later work has been. And again, I haven't seen The Closer. So it's hard for me to say, like, on the one hand, I want to say, yes, Chappelle is my problematic fave, but I don't even know if I can honestly say that he's a fave anymore. Like, I have not been... One of the things that I loved, right, um, about Chappelle was his ability to make you laugh while pointing out the horrible systemic racism and and just the ills of this system. And one of the things that I find quite striking is that he, he no longer seems to be compelled by this desire to make people laugh. And I don't know that that's true, but I haven't found a lot of his later routines to be all that funny. And I feel like I can appreciate a good joke. If no one else can, I can appreciate a good joke. And so I just, it's hard to say, you know, so I grapple with that, right? I think it's been a while since I've taught an African-American comedy and humor course. But when I do teach one again, I'll certainly teach him even in, in spite of whatever, because I do think he's important in terms of thinking about contemporary African-American comedy. I do think looking at his delivery and his, you know, what some of his early stuff, which was subversive and just you know, powerful material and great material and funny material. I do think when we think about African-American humor as a way to transport important cultural messages while simultaneously thinking about this double entendre and this duality in the way that African-American comedy, that how that can work, I just think that his stuff, early stuff was transgressive, even while some of it was like, you know, stoner jokes and like <laughs> kind of bodily jokes, fart jokes that were, so half of it was kind of tasteless. <laughs> but yeah, so at any rate, I don't know. So I think now what I want to kind of more gravitate towards is I, and I don't even know what the genre is. This is how out of tune I am with, you know, I'm not trying to do that middle-aged person thing where it's like, I'm not cool. I don't know what you call it. The Twitter, like I literally just don't know the subgenre. but I was going to say trap music, but it's not even that. Like, so within hip hop, there are different movements. And, and so I really don't know what this new, um, it, well, it's not even all that new. I guess what I'm, so, so it's like the Megan the Stallions, the Cardi B's, the city girls of the world. And, and I just think I'm conservative. So it might be that it's so much profanity that, mm. um, that can be, you know, feel a little like, oh my gosh, she said 
you know, <laughs> pussy 50 times in this song. <laughs> but I love that shit. Like I like when I have, have to hit the road, like my, that's going to be on heavy rotation and maybe some some, you know, um, throwback to Little Kim, some Foxy Brown, which is not to say that I don't equally love MC like Queen Latifah, uh, Rod Digger, you know, other black women. Hip- and, and also KRS One, Big Daddy Kane, they just had a versus that was just everything. It was so good. So there is my appreciation and love for the nostalgia of Salt and Pepper and MC Light and whatever. I don't even, and it's not even the mass popularity of like a Megan Thee Stallion right now. I think it is that I love to see young black women not giving a fuck. <laughs> While we could say that. At least in appearances wise, maybe the same could have been said for like Little Kim or um, Foxy Brown. But I think one of the things that the industry has made clear or maybe just different things that I've read and seen that a lot of that, a lot of their uh, public representation of self was constructed by P. Diddy or by their man, you know, by by men. And whereas that does not seem to be the case with this new ilk or new generation. And so, yeah, I don't know the genre. It feels like ratchet hip hop or something. <laughs> but but I tell you, I was trying to almost do a lineage. I was listening to Megan Thee Stallion and then I went back to Gangsta Boo, who was like the first lady of the like three, six mafia crew. And I was like, yeah, where them dollars at? Like, yes, yes. And it just really, it you know, took me back to some of to my undergrad days, but also just it felt like women's empowerment, but I think the reason why it's sort of problematic is on the one hand, you have young women saying, you know, I own my sexuality, pay me, blah, blah, blah. But on the other hand, and this is probably the the somewhat conservative, I, I would never be a, say that I'm a person who invests in respectability politics. I reject that idea vehemently. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I'm like, wait, we're doing, are we, are we, are we trading sex for money? But on the other hand, like, okay, sex work is a legitimate, a legitimate field <laughs> in, in there. Sure. So yeah, that's probably where I want to go. It's not really <laughs> problematic, but it's just a lot of profanity and I'm getting old. So. <laughs> I do. I, I have noted that I am the profane one in this pairing. So that does make sense to me <laughs> you're the reason there's an asterisk in our shit in the in the title so yes i frequently cuss via text using asterisks <laughs> <laughs> yeah i i just i lack a sensor in in all situations i think uh, both written text and spoken out loud probably in ways that get me in trouble more often than not i i don't want to spend too much time on Chappelle, but i do I want to say that one thing, um, I didn't plan on watching the special, but I did accidentally stumble into the transcript of the closer and accidentally read the transcript of the closer, which is not the same as, as watching stand-up comedy, I realize, but um, I don't know. It's like, like you were saying, none of them are, none of them are jokes They're And, and as you know, lots of trans folks have written one being trans is hilarious. Going through second puberty is all sorts of funny. Um, but also, most of the jokes being made about trans people by non-trans people are completely, I mean, they're mundane. We've heard them. They're not funny. They're just poking fun at trans people. Um, and, you know, I think Chappelle himself has said, you know, we know the difference between laughing with us and laughing at us. And this is very, very much a, a laughing at um, in a way that's, I don't know, mean, 
you know, doesn't, doesn't feel funny in any sort of way. There's this, there's a joke where he compares transness to blackface that, uh, is a reiteration of a joke from sticks and stones actually, where he compares transness to him being Chinese. Uh, and he does this pretty God awful impersonation of a trans of a, of a Chinese man. And I was watching that cause it came across, it just popped up for me on YouTube and there's no way for me to laugh at that joke without endorsing some assumption about transness or Chineseness that is inherently really harmful. With that comparison, for that punchline to work, either the Chineseness he's doing is a sort of caricature, so the, the gender that I am doing is sort of a caricature, or the Chineseness that he's doing is authentic in some way, in which case that is a completely insulting portrayal of my racial identity. So anyway, uh, that's that's my brief engagement with with that. I I am not a scholar on African American humor uh, though, and have not uh, spent a lot of time with Chappelle's early work. Though I do, I did enjoy some of the early work. Um, it, by the time he popped back up with all of the homophobia and transphobia, it felt like a different comic to me. Uh, which might be, you know, it might be that. Um, I think we've talked about this before that for in, in the academy on, on much lower smaller stakes none of us are rich and famous in that way but when you are structurally marginalized and when you spend an entire lifetime or career scrapping for your own survival and legitimacy sometimes it's hard to shift that mode right and realize that right now your voice and your platforms have a different role than they used to and that not all directions for you are up <laughs> in terms of punching uh so yeah. Anyway, those are those are my like three thoughts about that. Yeah, I mean that's the thing, right? I've heard that there was reference to a trans friend, and in the way that Chappelle used to joke about being the token black friend, it's like how dare he? But I've had even close family or friends who they didn't come at me on a public platform, but who inboxed me or texted me. And it's so interesting how people can sometimes get to the same place as someone on the opposite end of, of, of the political spectrum, but not see how they got there because mm-hmm. they're so invested in the thing. And it's so interesting then because the way in which Chappelle is now becoming that thing. So like another analogy might be gun rights advocates. I have a lot of family who were either in the military or who were hunters and they come from this, you know, gun culture. And so, you know, it's sort of interesting that they, like complete opposite sets of reasons why they're, um, I think it's a second amendment. But so I'm finding similar logical leaps in terms of the Chappelle thing. And again, without having seen it, you know, what I can say, and it's interesting too, because I have friends who will say, some people say he's a genius, but here's what I see. Like, I see this cognitive dissonance and blah, blah, blah. And I said, I will die on that hill. I do think Chappelle is a comedic genius. And it's because I think that I hold him to a higher standard and that I know that you can do all of the things that he wants to do in terms of talking about structural racism and inequity without having to throw other groups under the bus. Like if it were someone else less talented and less capable, then people wouldn't give a shit, right? So many people who are writing these think pieces, we loved Chappelle. He represented our voice in a in a way that, you know, that we didn't have, that we're, we're deplatformed or, or didn't have <laughs> the ability to do that. And so when a relative or when a friend said to me, what next? I guess we won't be able to joke about disabled people or whatever. And I was like, actually, 
yeah. we shouldn't do that. That's right. that's, that's a horrible <laughs> thing. Unless that. you're a member of that group, and even then it might be questionable. But yeah, we actually shouldn't do that thing. That's a horrible, shitty thing to do. I'm like, how can this you know person that I respect and, and often find myself agreeing with a lot of their political takes? How can someone also say this completely to my mind, like nonsensical thing? I'm like, yeah, no, you shouldn't do that. It's a horrible thing. And when you know better, you do better. I was like, people laughed myself included at Eddie Murphy's Raw, which was, you know, horribly hom- homophobic. And there's been lots of people all the years. And I said, but now we know better. You can't do that. It's not okay. It's not cool. Yeah, we didn't have the cultural sensitivity. Yeah. And so it's just been so interesting in the way that it's been politicizing public debate. And I've been trying to deliberately stay out of them because I want to be able to go to Thanksgiving with my family to the extent that we can safely do so and not have a bitter, <laughs> like, I just avoid the conversation. I just have to leave the room. So, yeah. I mean, what you said about um, him giving a voice, I think that's, that's what, uh, from, you know, my remove not being part of the black community makes me hurt for, you know, black, queer and trans people in that particularly some of those writers have, have written, right. This was somebody who we felt that way about who then, deliberately showed we're not actually part of the we that, you know, he was representing at that time, which is particularly painful. Um, my, I'm teaching a transgender rhetorics class right now, and we were discussing Disclosure, the documentary on Netflix about trans representation of this past week. And it, it opens with a review of how trans people have been represented as the punchline for so very long in a way that actively dehumanize them in a way that legitimized violence against them and that legitimately also translated into physical violence against them. And so, you know, it provides on the same platform that, you know, is standing behind Chappelle, provides an argument for why this has real world harmful consequences. But I, I'm actually going to use that to, to segue into a lighter, into a lighter problematic fave. I, I just realized as we were talking um, I am, as a queer of a certain generation, attached to the L word. It's, it's, uh, it is, it's a soap opera for lesbians, basically. Um, and and it, it is the, the whitest version of California on TV from, I guess, the early 2000s. It also has a really awful trans character um, who does trans masculinity in a way that, that reinforces a lot of stereotypes in ways that have been roundly critiqued around the, around the internet. But also it was, and I think still is, the only TV show, mainstream TV show, that was about a community of lesbians, right? So at the time when I was, I don't know, it, you know, in my teens and early twenties, identifying as a lesbian, it was it was this representation that I that I clung to, despite the fact that it was about these like rich white people in um, L.A. Yeah, I'm trying to remember what part of California there. But anyway, if you watch it now, everything is super dated. You know, there's there's I I want to say there's very little that's that's at all redemptive about it, except for the fact that I am nostalgically attached to it. I think somebody wrote an article that was like, it's trash, but it's our trash, which is pretty much how I feel about it. Yes, I love it. It's trash, but it's our trash. <laughs> so I'll use that to say my other problematic fave is Kanye freaking West. Listen, let me tell you something. I have been, of course, disillusioned and disappointed as many people have <laughs> over the years with, with Kanye and as much as even when he and Jay-Z were at their heyday, I was really critical of what I felt like was this 
thread of conspicuous consumption in in their lyrics and similar artists where they were really not, most Black people don't have, their issues are not about Basquiat paintings and which Birkin bag to, to buy their wealthy wives. And so in some ways, the materiality of their lyrics created this um, cognitive dissonance for me because I loved it. But I love that they took ownership of that. It was interesting. It's like, I'm wealthy. I don't have the problems that you poor Black people have in a way that I think is probably why a lot of academics feel like Chappelle is being disingenuous because he's still claiming to be a voice for the masses, but you're a voice for rich, Black, cis, hetero, like for celebrity. And I liked that. And so one of the things that even though his career has had these crazy trajectories. I am teaching this, you know, class, the Black Collegiate in Popular Culture. And so we're listening to the college dropout and late registration and graduation. And then, you know, I really need to listen to Donda. And I'm sure we may even have a Donda versus Montero or some other, like just music episode where we talk about it. But I'm really... As much as I I don't like the churchy thing, but I do like the churchy thing. So I love the Black church aesthetic of the album as someone who grew up in the Black church. I don't largely agree with a lot of Kanye's messaging, but I didn't even before before he moved to this. So I guess really he's a self-proclaimed musical genius. I might be inclined to agree, maybe, (laughs) but I really appreciate his musical evolution and the way that he keeps refashioning himself, even while I feel like he's garbage, but he's my garbage or he's our garbage. And I just think he's, well, here's what I really do think. And I guess we we found this out of some years ago that he does have mental illness that is diagnosed, but maybe not treated or not consistently treated. And so that I think might be at the heart of a lot of his issues, but I do think his, you know, sort of talent and whatever is undeniable. And still, whether you like the messaging or not, I mean, he just still produces really good music. My problematic faves are about music. I will, outside of a work context, will shake my (laughs) decrepit ass to something that is probably exploitive and might be also objectifying women, but I, I'm not sure <laughs> because maybe it's maybe we're objectifying ourselves. I don't even know what to make of it, but I really think that a lot of my stuff is about music. So, and apparently mine are about TV shows, but I, I do. So I have this thought right now that's kind of half emerging that I'm about to talk through. Um, in disclosure, a lot of the the trans people speaking on it talk about how they found representations of themselves in things that were not necessarily explicitly meant to be trans, for example, Bugs Bunny, or in things that were not necessarily meant for them. Laverne Cox talks about being very attached to Yentl. Um, And the ways that people who don't have a lot of mainstream representation have to find sort of their hope and reflections of parts of themselves where they can, you know, and a lot of that is just not going to be perfect. And so... (sighs) One of my one of my struggles with this, and, and I want to really like underscore that that none of the the major arguments about Chappelle have actually asked for his show to be taken down. Like none of it is actually about canceling him. It's about amplifying trans representation or acknowledging that this part of this show is transphobic. Here are some things you could watch that offer more whole, comprehensive empathetic, genuine representations of transness as an experience. So like in a world where we had equal or equitable access to representation, to audiences uh, who would hear us, 
some dude ranting transphobic things wouldn't matter, you know, in the same way that lots of people saying things about cis had rich white men doesn't really impact the fact that they are rich and affluent and have lots of access to levers of power. So the problem is not inherently in this one person saying these things. It's those things in a system that has structurally disenfranchised and silenced other people. And so I guess all that is to say that we find or we hear elements of what we need to survive in worlds where we haven't been able to have access to all of that representation. And the solution isn't so much to like cancel all of the bad things so much as find and advocate for and fight for avenues for, for more voices to offer better, better representations in the world. That's a really great point. And I think it's, so I'll use that to, to segue. Maybe this might be the last point. It's so it makes me think about uh, why for many people who teach undergraduates, especially freshmen and sophomores, lower division undergraduate students, we used to really like Adichie's The Danger of a Single Story, right? And it's so ironic, I think, in the same way that we see Chappelle. Like, here's this wonderful, you know, Black woman writer who's talking about, here's the problem when you only have one narrative. And that tends to dominate your perception of a group. And then to unironically for the same person (laughs) to then amplify transphobia in a way that doesn't seem to be at all reflexive. So it makes me think that there is this myopic perspective that many, maybe everyone, I don't know, has when it comes to groups outside their own privilege. And so really unfortunate, but to your point, we need more diverse representation so that you so that the one doesn't become the many. So that one representation of, of trans identity or queer identity doesn't become the default. Yeah, I think, yeah, a call for that <laughs> would, would be appropriate. Like, let's get more diverse. Not that we have any power to do that, but... Uh, yeah, but we'll say it in our, our platform with two listeners. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Someone will hear it. Listen, yeah. when we ever launch it, we will have... At least twenty listeners. I'm telling you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad. I'm glad you brought that up. Um, you know, that's I. I didn't even think of that. But Adichie being my probably my my biggest heartbreak in terms of uh, Americana was my favorite novel, and I just didn't know what to do with that once she started, you know, doubling down on her transphobia. But you know, in the in the spirit of if we're going to discuss transphobia, we're also going to amplify trans people owning and finding power in their transness. I also want to mention Akweke Maisie, who's been doing really brilliant stuff in terms of not only language and imagery and character, but also just asking us to reimagine what writing can do in the world. Um, and so, so I just wanted to mention them as a trans non-binary writer who has been doing really brilliant work, uh, who also got in a very public spat with Adichie, but um, whose writing has uh, been a tremendous force for trans representation in this world. Well, yeah, I mean, that is, that's, I think we could probably go on for days and especially because per our title, we we unpack things. So we work through things. So we could do that, you know, forever, but I think we'll, you know, probably stop there. But yeah, just hit us up at the unpack this podcast at gmail.com or on Twitter. 
at the unpack this podcast and yeah just let us know if you have questions thoughts comments and we will talk to you soon